We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Welcome to Land Decolonized new podcast that explores the practical side of the Framework Agreement on First Nation Land Management in Canada. My name is Richard Perry, and this show is for First Nations leadership, staff, community members, and anyone else concerned with the governance of reserve lands outside of the Indian Act. On this episode, is your land code community ready for an emergency? And where does lawmaking fit into your emergency management? You're going to hear from Andrew Bynan, Lawmaking and Enforcement Advisor with the First Nations Land Management Resource Centre. You'll discover what other communities are doing. Andrew also has some options that you might want to consider. Here's our conversation on land code and emergency management. And joining me now from Ottawa is Andrew Bynan. Andrew, great to have you with us again. Yes, uh, good morning again, Richard. Nice to have a chance to talk again. If there's one thing we've all learned across the country and around the world, really, from the whole COVID-19 pandemic is that emergency planning writ large is extremely important to Indigenous communities and land code First Nations. Can you describe what's happening in that field and is it getting the attention it deserves? Well, it's really an interesting issue, Richard. Um let me start at the most basic point. Uh, I, I said in another conversation we had earlier that uh, I tend to be a bit of a critic of the old Indian Act. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because unlike uh, legislation dealing with governance for other governments, um, the Indian Act has, has, has nothing on land use planning, environmental planning, emergency planning. It's, it's one of the features that's completely missing from, from uh, uh, governance under the terms of the Colonial Indian Act. And so in, in moving out of the old Indian Act uh, land system, uh, our framework agreement First Nations are exploring through land code authority much stronger, comprehensive, and more effective governance. And one of the, the big emerging areas, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, was to to try to more strongly deal with uh, land use planning, uh environmental management planning, and to some extent, the emerging area of uh, planning for climate change, for example, but also emergency management planning. And so we have a division in our resource center and some experts who really are trying to champion and support uh, with First Nations effective planning across a range of issues, land use planning and uh, emergency management planning in particular. Um, the the COVID-19 pandemic has been a, an area that First Nations, land code First Nations have had to respond to or wanted to respond to in the in the immediate term. But it's also what we're seeing is it's triggering a, a wider um, realization among certain leaders and, and land governance uh, directors that 
uh, once we're through this uh, immediate crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic, it would make some sense to to invest a bit in trying to strengthen emergency management plans and uh, the laws uh, that support emergency management as well. Yeah, and emergency management, I mean, the current systems that are common throughout North America in particular can really be, based on personal experience, can be quite overwhelming when you look at Mm. mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery, you know, the so-called four pillars. We've got some really small land code communities too, right? Do they have the capacity to even approach systems like that? Well, one of the good things about the framework agreement and the land code is uh, that it's very, very flexible. Um, And so as we talked about uh, in an earlier conversation, uh, the the framework agreement has enough flexibility built into it to to support effective lands governance by smaller and remote communities, those with larger populations, others that are close to urban centers. So the whole question of emergency uh, management, as well as the emergency management laws, uh, you know, typically is approached through that lens. Uh, What might make sense for uh, a First Nation that's running $100 million worth of economic activity in close proximity or even within uh, an urban center in Canada uh, in terms of emergency management would probably be quite different from the emergency management challenges that a a much smaller or more remote First Nation may have. So emergency management and uh, making associated emergency laws, I'm not in any way suggesting this is easy. Um, And there will always be uh, capacity and training uh, and funding challenges, for example. But um, at least it, I think it generally makes sense to try to tackle uh, what is manageable in terms of emergency management and realistic within your resources and capacities, as opposed to saying, well, the whole thing is of an alarming risk and really hard to manage, so I'm not going to update my emergency plans or, or laws, right? Yeah. I mean, nowadays, too, with what appears to be an increasing uh, frequency and intensity of fires and floods, uh, this has to be on the radar of every community. I think you're exactly right. Uh, Climate change conversations are raising awareness that the uh, as you say, the frequency and the, and the nature and the magnitude of, of these uh, challenges is changing. But uh, even without that backdrop, uh, as I say, coming out of the inadequate Indian Act system, uh, there's generally a realization that more of this has to be uh, put in place. And then uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has just uh, layered an extra dimension on this of realization that um, some investment or additional investment into the efforts uh, and and preparedness for emergencies of various types is is something to be re-examined, right? So, yeah, uh, and what you said at the outset about using governance tools, how do land code communities go about creating these governance tools as they relate to emergency planning and law? Well, I think we'd need to have a, a three, three day <laughs> podcast on that one. Let's uh, just do part A. <laughs> okay. Part A, the basics. Uh, I, I'm kind of kidding. And yet uh, I think it's an important launching point, right? The, the, there's, 
there is a lot to be done and this is very complex. So it, it probably will take a, a, a pretty focused uh, investment of effort. And so, for example, I know that um, uh, some of the First Nations that our resource centre works with uh, in terms of developing land use plans, it, it, it to, to develop a land use plan and to have adequate uh, community engagement and support and to really think through how this is going to be governed and managed, uh, it's typically more than a year uh, of, of effort uh, that is undertaken to do it. Well, the same thing with uh, environmental management planning. And I think the emergency uh, management planning efforts are going to probably require a similar investment of, of significant effort. It's, it's really not something that can or should be done uh, too rapidly. Um, having said that, it, it's not an impossible exercise. Um, and as much as I criticize the old Indian Act system, I do have to admit that um, there, there has generally been uh, some program funding from uh, the federal government, um, the old Department of Indian Affairs, for to, to deal with situations where um, uh, First Nations may encounter um, some of the typical emergencies that they have to respond to. So, for example, uh, forest fires that race through uh, an area and uh, and actually come close to First Nation lands. Um, we've we've often seen on, on television, for example, the news that a particular community has been evacuated after a declaration of emergency. And there is some federal-provincial cooperation uh, where the First Nation government declares an emergency and then there's an evacuation response for the forest fire. That's at a very basic level, though, and I think what land code First Nations are turning to do is to say, we don't want to rely on that uh, basic um, emergency management response or crisis response uh, that is is dealt with uh, with in partnership with the federal and provincial governments. Um, as we talked about in an earlier episode, more effective lands governance uh, includes an examination of climate change, uh, development plans, um, uh, changes to the population of the community, and and therefore a, a starting examination of, well, what tools are we missing for uh uh, the pillars, uh, as you described, of emergency management. Uh, what what gaps uh, uh, do we perhaps face right now, and how do we go about building a, a better system? So um, I shouldn't mistakenly suggest that there's nothing there in terms of emergency response. Of course, First Nation leadership are are, are much stronger than that. I mentioned earlier the the so-called four pillars of emergency management. Uh, Firstly, mitigation, then preparedness, response, and recovery. And those are pretty common throughout whatever system you're talking about. How does that apply to the work you're doing and the discussions you're having with land code communities? Well, I think it's exactly the right set of issues, Richard, uh, both in terms of planning, uh, but also even in uh, uh, the preparation of laws. It makes sense right within the provisions of a law, at least we would recommend that there be consideration of including in an emergency law or an emergency management law of the First Nation, uh, some measures which are aimed at preventing the risks of emergencies from happening in the first place. So to some extent, authorities um, of responsible individuals to 
investigate uh, particular uses of land, to uh, issue orders that may be necessary to reduce the risk of an emergency happening in the first place. The second component that I expect that we'll see in these emergency management laws is uh, a declaration of emergency and the immediate steps uh, and authorities to intervene in order to mitigate uh, the, the risk or the spreading of harm. And um, so typically in these emergency laws, you'll, you'll have, have uh, consideration up front of, well, what does a declaration of emergency look like? Who is authorized to make it? And often I've even seen a schedule attached to the law that is a draft declaration of emergency. And in that way, there can be education in advance for fire officials, police officials, health authorities, uh, senior members of the administration, public works, neighboring governments. This is what a de- an approved declaration of emergency looks like in our community. If this happens, then you can understand why there would be a series of authorized officials who immediately swing into action. And there's no lack of clarity or confusion. The declaration of emergency is clear. So that can happen in a community, even if, say, the neighboring municipality or the province or the federal government has not gone that route, because you've got that governance control, right? Well, that's right. Uh, Maybe there's a huge national emergency like COVID-19, but there could be a very different emergency and even of a relatively small scale, uh, a broken water main, uh, a rock slide that's only on the First Nation lands. Um, The fact that that's not a full-scale national emergency doesn't mean that it's not a major disruption and urgent issue, at least for a short period within the First Nation community. So that's another point about emergency management laws. They, they, they can be designed to respond to um, very large scale matters and even local But even on a local basis where something is temporary, like a rock slide, um, you know, it can be important to have done the planning and even the necessary laws to make sure that whatever needs to be done on an urgent basis, um, there won't be confusion and there won't be questioning the authority of somebody to immediately use a backhoe, for example, to to dig something up and to to try to uh, avoid the risks of harm. Sure. That that could, in normal times, be considered trespassing. But wait a minute, this is actually legally authorized under the terms of our law. Um, and then, Richard, we had talked about more generally, uh, after uh, an emergency, at least the initial response to an emergency has taken place, there could be additional measures put in place to 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 respond to the effects of the emergency and, again, to try to prevent uh, a second cataclysm or another event from, from happening. So what's, what's interesting about the emergency management laws, as I say, is I, I really like the, the, the four pillars um, uh, that you described at the outset, and it is what you typically see in, 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 in environment, sorry, in emergency management laws that other governments have enacted, and that's why I think it makes sense for First Nations to to at least consider whether those issues make sense within their own community. Where do developmental First Nations go, or First Nations not in the system yet, not in the land code or the framework agreement system? Where do they go to learn and gain experience when it comes to emergency management and law? 
Uh, I would say our, our website, but also, you know, one of the functions that our resource center focuses on a lot is is uh, training and mentoring and even professional development for uh, lands governance uh, staff. And so um, we have a, a regular schedule of training activities on a variety of subjects, but also if there is a need in a particular community, say, to focus on a gap in emergency management, then uh, by contacting your field services officer, the, 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 the official in our resource center who tends to work in your region, and just raising what it is that you would like to hit, be it education, lawmaking, planning, uh, or all of the above, you know, we'll try to respond and and swing the resources into action. In terms of developmental First Nations that haven't yet adopted a land code, I I think a lot of effort has to focus on really trying to get that land code right and to um, enlist uh, support from the membership so that there will be a successful vote. It might be a little tricky to also undertake the emergency uh, management power at the same time, but perhaps not. And at least it it it's probably valuable to have the conversation whilst drafting the land code. Uh, will we put into our land code, for example, provisions that allow for uh, lawmaking on an urgent basis? And is emergency management planning and uh, trying to draft an emergency management law something that we would do uh, put some effort into before even adopting the land code or within six months afterwards. Um, I guess the key point is flexibility and uh, uh, we want to try to be responsive. Certainly, uh, I think it's fair to say that as a resource center, we can uh, assist First Nations directly and also, we have a valuable network. Um, one of the good things about the framework agreement for land code First Nations is you're not alone. Um, we we probably will know about some other First Nations who have done something similar, and uh, there's really a valuable network for sharing uh, best practices and lessons learned too. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I think I did video interviews with uh, six or seven. Uh, board members in Winnipeg uh, last year, the year before. And I think each one of them said that very thing, that there are others who've gone before us and they're more than willing to share information. And there's likely something there that you can use or, you know, disregard if it doesn't apply to your community. Yeah, I agree very strongly. I I, I really have been struck uh, by the willingness to share uh, lessons learned, and even where there has been a financial investment and and Herculean investor investment by particular First Nations to build something, they they're not proprietary about it. They're they're proud of it and usually willing to share uh, whatever lessons learned there there may be. It's it's quite a remarkable thing. I tend to say that uh, if you uh, if you choose to uh, adopt the framework agreement and land code, you're kind of joining a, a, a freedom movement, <laughs> a liberation, and uh, joining a family of uh, land code First Nations who are all uh, making this land governance world uh, work better over time. And you're trying to, I guess, share the experience and share the, the knowledge that you've gained by uh, getting involved in some online webinars. And I think you've got a big conference plan for 2021 now. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. Uh, uh, 
improving the enforcement of First Nation laws has been a, a key strategic priority for the board members uh, for some time now. And it's certainly an issue that uh, is frustrating and, and has been raised by a lot of our uh, land code First Nations. Uh, and in conversations with the federal government, we uh, were asked, uh, we were invited to actually uh, lead um, in in arranging for a national uh, enforcement of laws conference, not just for First Nations, but actually uh, uh, enforcement of indigenous government laws, including uh, the Inuit and the Métis, and trying to draw... Uh, senior federal officials, provincial officials, uh, private sector legal counsel, even the academic community to some extent in a a face-to-face meeting and conference that could draw as many as 500 people. And uh, not just for the purpose of academic discussion of of what the enforcement challenges are, but really trying to get to the nuts and bolts and and see what solutions can be put in place and best uh, uh, practices. In fact, we were going to hold the conference as a face-to-face meeting uh, in Ottawa in 2020. But with the COVID-19 crisis, we've now realized that we probably have to postpone that until 2021. But in the meantime, because of the enforcement of uh, enforcement, sorry, the importance of enforcement of laws, we have just launched what we're calling a national electronic conversation on the enforcement of Indigenous government laws. And on our uh, Facebook page, there's a link for those who might be interested uh, to register to participate in a series of national electronic conversations, live stream sessions on a variety of enforcement topics. In the future, I think we're going to have sessions with respect to the Federal Contraventions Act, um, uh, with respect to the enforcement of environmental laws. I think there will probably be sessions uh, a bit later involving some federal officials from RCMP or uh, Correctional Services Canada. We're going to have to see. Um, I'm really hoping that this will uh, become a popular item and draw in uh, some of the influential persons who can make a difference, whether it be from Indigenous governments uh, or from the federal and provincial governments. Good stuff. We'll be sure to uh, share those links in the show notes. And uh, as usual, thanks for helping guide us through the fundamentals of emergency management planning. And we'll have to check back maybe in four or six months just to see if there's anything new happening in the space. Absolutely. And I, uh, my bet will be that there will be a lot of new things. Uh, it's a dynamic area. So I uh, really enjoyed talking with you about it, Richard. I appreciate your time, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. The Land Decolonized podcast is brought to you by the First Nations Land Management Resource Center and is supported by the Lands Advisory Board. For up-to-date information on the land code, including governance tools, training materials, and much more, visit labrc.com. That's labrc.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening.